Hey everybody, it's Alex. We are not doing our regular Wednesday recording today because we had an illness on the team. Happily though, we do have an episode from a little bit ago that's essentially a Friday app, if you will. So we have a lot to talk about today and we have it in the can. So Marianne, Natasha, and I are going to be riffing on executive changes at Clearco, essentially what is a $2 billion baby. And then we're going to talk about Forge and where its co-founders came from, Alloy raising $20 million for e-commerce automation, and also what's the news over at Workwhile. In the meantime, don't forget this is a live episode week for us. So if you want to tune in on Thursday on Hopin or Twitter Spaces, we'll be recording the Friday episode live as a group. It's always a good fun time. So we'll see you then. In the meantime, please enjoy. Hello and welcome back to Equity, a podcast about the business of startups where we unpack the numbers and the nuance behind the headlines. And I'll just say this, we had some technical issues getting started, but we persevere here on the Equity team. We don't give up. And that's because we have Natasha with us and she has lots to say. Natasha, hi. Hello, hello. We are literally here because we had FOMO from not talking to all of you, I guess, last week and this week, because we're going to have a special episode coming out this Friday. So this is our, yes. this is our, just like our treat, our treat of the week. Yeah. We just can't shut up. And one of the reasons why we can't shut up is that Marianne keeps writing amazing stuff. Marianne, hello. How are you? I am great. How are you? I'm just glad you're not echoing anymore. Me I'm too. just Me so too. glad. Yeah. I hate echoes. To, to record a Twitter space, you think would be very easy, but it's not because technology isn't quite there yet. Yes, we sent people to the moon with essentially the equivalent of a TI-83, but recording audio, not possible today. But Natasha, quite a lot to get through. We are going to talk about a couple of deals, all very interesting. We are going to riff on a $2 billion baby. We'll explain what that means in just a minute. And we're going to wrap up with a quick note on Homebrew and its new capital, I don't know, setup, if you will, eternal capital, permanent capital, whatever you want to call it. Quite a lot going there on the early stage. But to kick things off, let's talk about what we do while we work. Yes. So I wrote this last week. I wrote about this company called Workwild. They raised a 13 million Series A by Reach Capital, which super diverse firm, really interesting. But I care less about the money and more about what they're telling us about the trend of the gig economy. Mm. The CEO kind of got on the mic and was basically like, I am creating this platform for portable benefits. In other words, she's trying to create a benefits platform that helps hourly workers, no matter where that they're working or where they're doing gigs, get some sort of benefits. It's kind of like the 2.0 of what we saw when we were first in the gig economy and people kind of could work as much as they want. For folks around the world, Natasha, who don't have to deal with things like having healthcare tied to employment, what benefits does Workwild bring to gig economy workers that they might lack in kind of the American system? Yeah, so they basically, it's healthcare benefits. They're working on creating more services for mental health and just more stability for their income. Yeah. So far in startups, we've been pitched this fallacy in which we're told that people want flexible work for two hours a week, and then they'll go on to doing their life. What they think, what the startup thinks is that people want flexible work, but they also want some sort of baked instability at yes. the same time. To me, it's kind of like that graduation of assuming that everyone wants to be that part-time Uber driver and then go back to normal life. People can want flexibility and also want like a 40-hour work week. Yeah, I really love the idea of gig workers or contract workers having access to health benefits. I think that's very, very important. I think I'm a little unclear though, and you can help me understand, Natasha, how does it work though? Like, do you have to work a certain number of hours and can it be for more than one 
company or exactly how can you have access to these kinds of benefits? Yeah. So one of the benefits that WorkWell wants to provide hourly workers is a platform where they can kind of sort through different opportunities. That platform will give them, sure, access to telehealth services, but also offer benefits such as like next day pay and pay transparency. And I think that that's really where we see people having more optionality on what they want to sign up for. So in my story, I have a little bit of a, I have a picture where it kind of shows shift details and then people who are able to show up. And right now, Marianne, to your point, I don't think there's any minimum for which you need to work or maximum, but 80% of workers on WorkWiles platform are looking to work more than 30 hours a week and 60% want to work more than 40 hours a week. And so I think there's a certain kind of person who wants portable benefits who may also be showing up more to their jobs. Yeah. And that makes sense to me because if the jobs weren't booked through the service, the company wouldn't know what the rate was, how to pay for it. You can't have next day pay if you're working for three different companies off the platform. So it has to go through work while. I like it. And I just want to say the data points that Natasha just brought up, the 80% want to work more than 30 and 60% more than 40 hours per week really undercuts the idea that gig workers are doing two DoorDash deliveries after their day job. Like for most folks that are looking for benefits, this is their day job. And so I think that we should, you know, expect and demand more from gig economy work. Yeah. It's kind of like us finally shaking off the idea that the passion economy is just something people do and don't need more from. I feel like in the past, companies could have gotten away with just connecting workers to opportunities. But as we saw from this company, as we saw from Runner, which is Arlen Hamilton's new startup, there's fully businesses that are there to kind of tack on these services and fits into, Alex, what we talked about last Wednesday show on the great resignation and the worker being centralized as this person you need to support with more than a paycheck. I also really like that they're not being charged for this service. Yeah. So yeah, WorkWell's not taking a cut in order to access opportunities. My only like question mark with this, it does go back to a little bit of maybe what I've been taught about the gig economy is yes, they've been able to find this early user base of workers who want the best of both worlds of flexibility and also showing up to work. But how many people does that sort of lifestyle apply to is just still my question. Because won't those people, if they do want an hourly job that is 40 hours a week, just do a more traditional job or just stick to one employer so they don't have to have the headache? Mm-hmm. And I think that's less of a question that they can answer now, but more something that we'll see if they try and expand their total adjustable market with this new fundraise. Let's move on and talk about Alloy Automation. This is a company that I have covered for some time. I'm a big fan of automation in general. Just as a kind of data point for me, how familiar are you guys with the idea of taking kind of rote tasks and turning them into kind of like low-key software solutions? Should I explain that to folks or is that kind of a well-known concept? Kind of like anything you do in an Excel sheet to be a SaaS company. So that's kind of the canonical version of this. Like, <laughs> do you want to build a company? Well, find any place in the business world where spreadsheets are currently in use and build a company around it. Alloy is a little bit different. It's automation kind of aimed at the e-commerce world. And I covered them raising, I think it was a four or $5 million seed round last year. They are back at the well, raising a $20 million Series A led by Ooh. Andreessen Horowitz. I spoke to Sarah Du and Greg Mojica. Both really, really fine people. I like them quite a lot. Glad to see a company that had a pretty cool thesis do well. But I want to talk about what they can kind of pull off for people. Because when we talk about automation or anything kind of in the enterprise space, I feel like we end up kind of so high level, it's almost ethereal. So I went to the Alloy site and what they have done is they've put together a bunch of what they call recipes and collections, which I think is a very sweet way of talking about automation. And they're essentially ways to string together different things in the e-commerce world to create tasks. So for example, you can put together a quote recipe of automation tools that will send a Slack notification when a product is created 
created. Or you can get notified in Slack every time someone puts a order over a certain dollar amount on Shopify. So essentially, they let you create these lightweight almost like mini apps or like microservices to some degree around your product. And, you know, guys, as we've seen with the e-commerce boom in the last couple of years, it's not a huge surprise that people are looking for more and more ways to make their e-commerce set up quicker, if that makes sense. Marianne, how much did that track? Because I know you want to talk about this a little bit more. Yeah, I mean, I definitely there's been a boom in e-commerce in large part due to the pandemic. So I guess what I'm trying to understand is how specifically do the e-commerce companies benefit from this? Time saving, essentially, because think about like, think about the tasks that you don't want to, for example, Marianne, whenever we pull up a new WordPress post, I have to click 37 different buttons to like, say like, yeah, it's me. Yes, I do want a headline. Woohoo, body text. Let's look at this. Let's delete formatting. Let's insert these tags. That's a big waste of our time. But the journalism world isn't so big that we get kind of like ready built <laughs> automation services for us. There's not that many of us, but the e-commerce world's enormous. And so if you're doing a high volume e-commerce thing, if you're selling lots of stuff, if you can automate certain tasks, you can save actual lots of time. And the people whose time you're saving are probably expensive. That's the idea. And also the e-commerce brands don't actually have to build out the tech on their own. Yes. Alloy sits in the middle, all the other things kind of plug into it. And you can with their, I'm going to call it recipe collection, because that's just adorable. I think kind of like plug and play different things into your setup. This also fits into my general thesis, Natasha, about no code, kind of like anything that's integrative. I don't know if that's a word, like an API, for example. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think the nexus of no code and the API economy is going to really unlock a lot of human potential. It just makes me very, very excited as a non-coder myself. Yeah, it's super clean and savvy, which I love. And where I always get stuck is like trying to ground it and visualize it. You were saying it, it gets up here. It, I'm, I'm gesturing. No one can see us. Yeah, you're, no, she, she's waving her hands over her head like a hat is what she's doing on the video. <laughs> E-commerce gets in the cloud because, I mean, similar to what we talk about with fintech all the time, all these companies start looking similar. And I'm wondering yeah. when it comes to Alloy, if there's like a company we can root it to or contrast it with. I'm thinking Shopify, but that feels easy. Wrong. No, I, I wouldn't go that way. I would say Zapier, probably. Okay. Uh, hold on. Zapier. Oh, Zapier. 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 Oh, Zapier. The CEO taught me a, a mnemonic about how to pronounce Zapier, Zapier. And I, oh, yeah, they did. Happier makes you happier. Zapier, oh, Zapier, Zapier makes, happier. makes you happier. That's a good Ooh. one. Oh, gosh. Okay. Think of the free advertising we just gave them. My gosh. God damn it. Yeah. That's freaking hell. We should get more cynical. Zapier makes you sadder. There you go. Now it bounced you down. The point is, Zapier is a company that has grown to enormous size by letting people connect different services around the world. Alloy was focused more on slightly more complex automations and definitely tuned towards the e commerce world. World. And so they've essentially picked their starting vertical, though I wouldn't be shocked if Alloy, which is a pretty generic name, did end up later on with a broader remit than just e-commerce. Before we move on to Marianne's thing about Instacart, I'm very curious about that, a data point about the market. We've talked a lot in the last couple of months about how things might be slowing down and how, you know, the 2021 craze might be coming down a little bit, uh, cooling perhaps. Well, last year when Alloy raised, it was $4 million, they raised it a $16 million pre. So they had a $20 million post-money valuation. A year later, they raised a $20 million round. So their valuation went up a lot in the last year. So yes, the market is perhaps cooling a little bit, but it's still freaking hot is my takeaway. Especially when you're a company that is kind of like the meeting of two worlds that you mentioned, Alex. I think it's not difficult to see and imagine e-commerce continuing to boom, unlike some other pandemic corrected sectors. Mm -hmm. And then I also want to give a shout out to Sarah Dew, their CEO and co-founder. I feel like she has this really fascinating story and her pinned tweet actually, I mean, I'm not going to ruin it. Go to her pinned tweet. It's, it's a good one. And it has something to do with Alex's coverage. <laughs> 
Yeah. If you want to know what it's like to have parents with high expectations and when your accomplishments don't quite line up with what they had in mind, something that I have actually uh, dealt with in my own life, you'll appreciate what she's talking about. She also had a pretty good LinkedIn post about this last round and yes. how her parents have kind of come around and so forth. So it's all very good. But let's not tarry. Marianne, everyone's favorite grocery delivery company has news. And is it good news? Well, it's not so much news from Instacart, but it is about a person who loved Instacart. And I actually really enjoyed writing the story. It's not like a funding round, which is a nice change of pace, but it's about Ofek Lavion, who was sure. head of, yeah, yeah, he was head of payments, payment products at Instacart. Previously worked at Sonder and Uber as well. Tons of payment infrastructure experience. He says a highlight of his career was an Instacart after the pandemic when he helped he helped make it possible for people who take part in the nation's EBT, SNAP program, or pay groceries with food stamps to be able to do so online through Instacart. Cool. It wasn't until 2018 that the USDA, which oversees the SNAP program, made it even possible for retailers to be able to accept food stamps online. So Instacart actually began to do so. It was really important to OFEC. He thought this was a, a very important thing to have happen. The only problem, though, he said, is the technology they used the legacy provider was super slow and clunky. It took like nine months to get it going. Even after it was, yeah, even after it was implemented, there were a lot of issues. So in the process of looking for a better solution, Instacart executives were introduced by Instacart's president to this startup interesting. Yeah, called Forage. He was an investor in the company too, actually, which is also very interesting. And Forage is a YC-backed company, participated in, I think, last summer's cohort. Okay. And they're basically trying to be the stripe for government-funded payments. Okay, they're trying... So yeah, sorry, go ahead. I, I dig that, but I, I just want to go back. Mm -hmm. Forage? It's not forage? Maybe it's forage. I don't know, Alex. Oh, I thought I, I thought I thought you knew, and I was like, why are we going with the French pronunciation? Is it like is it like it's a fancy forage? forage? Are we for truffles? But, you know, I, I, <laughs> I, I like forage. I, like, I, I don't know. Forage sounded good at the moment, but probably you're right. Um, yeah, let's let's do forage. But anyway, I mean, Marianne, I feel like we rarely, you rarely, and we all rarely cover executive shifts. Mm -hmm. yes. So, what struck out to you, and what made you want to cover Instacart? Well, you know, the fact I was really drawn to the passion coming from these guys, right? From OFEC, from the Forage CEO, and, and just how passionate they really seem to be about wanting to make sure that more merchants and grocers could accept EBT payments online. This is a population that needed it for various reasons, the pandemic, or maybe being homebound or living in an area that doesn't make it accessible to get to grocery stores. And, you know, this process previously could take 12 to 18 months. The startup says their technology can help grocers start processing these payments in like one third the time. The passion that OFEC had was just really inspiring. He was like, look, I mean, this is my calling. I want to make sure that more people can have access to use these payments online to get groceries. Yeah. And look, the government's not going to pull it off by itself. Let's be clear. So I think a company has to do it. And I've already thought of the mascot for the company. It can be a caricature of the famous British politician, uh, Nigel Farage. <laughs> And, Perfect. Uh, we needed that. I'll be sure to tell if, you if you don't like my joke, uh, stop voting for the Tories. <laughs> okay, let's move on to a story that Natasha wrote that I think had kind of like the best subhead ever, which is the $2 billion baby. <laughs> and we have talked about Pipe recently on the show. We have not talked about ClearCo in a minute. Natasha, why don't you fill us in on what's going on and why we care about it today? Yeah, so last week, ClearCo announced that it's 
co-founder Andrew D'Souza is stepping back from his role as CEO and he's being succeeded by Michelle Romanow, who was also his co-founder. They were previously in a relationship and their breakup was part of the reason, as well as ClearCo really going through this massive rebrand, getting on late stage investors, including our favorite SoftBank last year. I mean, it was, I'm somewhat mad. I didn't guess that it was coming, but I also feel like them kind of being transparent about it was a good sign because it's clearly a company that's under a lot of change right now. So married couples or couples in general, romantically attached people founding companies together is not new, but we tend to only hear about it when it's going well, and we tend to not hear about it when it's going poorly. So Natasha, is part of the interest here just the fact that they're being kind of open about that part of this not going well? I think ClearCo did a good job in the beginning of their story, like you said, sharing, yes, it was going well, but that they actually got investors saying no to them when they were first raising because they were in a romantic relationship. I see. And people didn't know what to do. That investor apparently came back and invested in them. So we did still see it work out. But I think especially when it's so part of your startup origin story, it makes sense. It will come out if there's like this kind of change. I mean, it was the first question I had when I was told that it was going to happen and they addressed it off the top. But I guess I'm glad to see that he's staying involved with the company. He's taking an executive chairman role, which he says is actually keeping him busier than before because of a more like UK definition of the phrase. Apparently in UK, executive chairmen are involved, unlike the US when executive chairman means that you're disappearing. (laughs) Uh, I don't care what country you're in. If your executive chairman is more active than your CEO, there's a problem. (laughs) I mean, I think all this raises uh, another point of founders being either friends or romantically involved or family and like the challenges that can present long-term. Yeah. Definitely. I think that the challenge is, can you have... It's already so hard to start a startup. I think the biggest reason startups fail is because of a co-founder breakup. And I think in ClearCo's case, this is a snapshot of a company that needs to get into the growth stage one way or another. In my interview with Andrew, I think he was pretty upfront. Let me find the actual quote. He was like, for a company of our level of maturity, candidly, we built this company in a time where capital was cheap and it was growth at all costs. Now we're moving into a time where you balance capital efficiency and growth. We have to start putting out forecasts and actually hitting those forecasts. So reading between the lines there, it's more of like self-awareness to change. And I, I don't think I'm being nice to them and saying that. Like, I feel like they basically admitted that. No, no. If you tell me last year was growth at all costs, this year it's about a balance. What you've told me is you've taken an entire dump truck full of cash and lit it on fire. And now you need to bring the temperature down to like a low smolder. And that's okay. Last year was entirely risk on, both in the public and private markets, as we saw. I'm not surprised to see this. And also a CEO who is particularly well-tuned to the growth at all costs mindset or business posture, if you will, may not be the exact right person to have lead a more moderate, less cost-centered organization. So perhaps moving to Michelle Romanow is the right thing for the business today. Oh, no, I, yeah, I was just going to say, I feel like this is really reflective of what a lot of companies are going through right now, right? Like just trying to preserve cash and not burn through it so fast. And I think things are going to change. Like I, we all said last year, like this is not sustainable, right? All this money flowing into just startups. And now more of them are going to have to like prove things. <laughs> and so ClearCo is no <laughs> exception. I do applaud the fact that they were ahead of it. They didn't try to not talk about their breakup, you know, at least they acknowledged it publicly. But again, I do think that this is, it's a difficult thing to do as a couple, start a company together, like think twice before you do that. Beyond, I guess, their relationship, what do you guys think about what this means for startups serving startups? I feel like ClearCo has always been my signal or temp check company that I've used to be like, if ClearCo is doing well in raising, that means other startups are raising. Because I guess we didn't explain yet, but ClearCo helps other (laughs) startups get non-dilutive capital. So its growth is really reflected and if startups are also growing. 
So I want to answer that with a question because Marianne, when we were prepping for today's show, I I saved this one. We didn't talk about it before, but why do we need clear co and pipe? That's my question because I I know they're not the exact same thing, Mm -hmm. but they both provide some sort of cash for some sort of revenue trade. And it can be venture debt versus whatever the hell pipe is. But do we need both? Are they in competition? Well, I mean, I think that those alternative forms of capital are popping up in different capacities. And yeah, I mean, I think startups these days want more options. Maybe they don't want to take VC money very early on, or they don't want to delete their ownership. So I don't know if we need them, but I don't think it's fair to say that we have too many companies right now providing non-dilutive capital to startups. They need options too, I guess, right? Yeah, yeah. I guess I'm trying to figure out how they're really different long-term. The differences I can tell is in pipe, which is, as you like to kind of say, Marianne, building the NASDAQ for revenue, essentially a a marketplace. There is a a market-determined price for the Mm -hmm. value of future incomes. Whereas in the case of Clearco, by my understanding, they do all the pricing of what this is and and kind of what they'll pay for it. And I don't know which mechanism is going to be ultimately more founder-friendly because in theory, Clearco could accept lower margins via higher risk and therefore provide better capital access to founders, or maybe pipe prices, but I, I don't know. But they seem to be kind of edging into each other's space here. There's certainly some parallel, no, overlap rather. I mean, especially because both yeah. had a focus on SaaS, I think originally, but then later expanded. Am I right, Natasha? Is that true with ClearCo? Yeah. yeah mm-hmm. And I think like, it's actually like a perfect time for us to be digging into these companies because the market is changing in such a way that these companies don't just have easy growth ahead of them. They actually have to be innovative. And ClearCo said that they are, you know, they've already launched, I think, a M&A marketplace and they're launching a of other products to kind of de-risk from just needing companies to raise to use them. Uh, so I think expansion's interesting for both yeah. going forward. Hey, I'm just going to throw this in. Expansion is good. A loss of focus is not. And I think it'll, be, it'll be curious to see where this lands. Before we get into our final topic and we double click on homebrew, I just want to say Matthew Lindley is with us today in the audience. Matthew Lindley is one of the founding hosts. Oh, he uh, just hosts. disappeared when you said oh that. Oh my gosh. He must have literally seen me say his name right away. <laughs> Matthew Lindley was here. Now we can slag him because he's gone. One of the founding co-hosts of the show, lovely to, to uh, see him. I was going to gently razz him, but I guess we'll move on now. <laughs> hey, but there's, about- there's Seamus here as well, so we can oh, tell him if we love him and miss him. The fun thing about Twitter spaces is we can see who's here and people at the top are generally people we follow already. So it's fun to see friends. Seamus, of course, was on the sales team at Crunchbase for a long time. A fine former Providence resident, a friar, if you're into local college sports. Anyways, uh, <laughs> let's move on to Homebrew and their change to a permanent capital model. Natasha, you wrote about this for TechCrunch. Why don't you give us the TLDR? Yeah. So the lead on the story, actually, no, my actual lead in the story, I was going to just tell you guys the news, but I love my lead. It was homebrew has a new cup of tea. Uh, get Good it? One. Thank you. <laughs> homebrew is homebrew is an early stage venture firm founded by Satya Patel and Hunter Walk. They are about a decade old, and they announced a, a few days ago that they are leaving the strictly seed stage focus, and they're also going self funded. So yeah. they are now a more evergreen fund, which means that they don't have an end date or even ownership percentages that they need to try and hit and target in order to invest money. My high level take is homebrew is going open ended, and that means that we're going to see them not try and go for companies that just have opening on their cap table for a 10% ownership stake. It's going to be a huge difference in how they invested capital and comes at a really interesting time. I mean, what, what do you guys think? I feel like there was two ways to read this news, optimistic or pessimistic. So I'm generally optimistic about this. One, because I happen to know Hunter Walk and I've known him for long enough that I think I can be fair in saying that he's not full of shit. 
And so <laughs> when he writes something, I tend to think he means it. You don't get kind of that snowblowing effect of overly PR statements from them. And so you can kind of just like read the words and not parse them. And they said, look, we could have gone out and raised a larger fund and we could have deployed more capital and probably made it work, but it wouldn't have been as founder focuses what they wanted to do. What happens is if you've been a VC for a long enough period of time, you've had a couple of funds, you probably have enough money that you can afford to begin to recycle at least more of it into the fund. Or if you're in the case of homebrew and you kind of want to, you can recycle all the money back in and kind of run it yourself. Who is your boss then? It's yourself. No more LP meetings, no more pitching, no more worried calls from the late uncle of some family office who's worried about an investment you made. All that's gone. You're just in charge of yourself, which is lovely. To me, it makes a lot of sense. And I'm here. Yeah, I'm actually, I think it's a great move for them. And it's not shocking given those of us who've talked to, to Satya and Hunter in the past with their focus on investing at a very early stage. They've backed some interesting companies along the way, including Plaid, right? Which is worth multi-billion dollars at this point. I I think that they just want more, maybe more freedom and who and when they invest in companies. They are in a position now that they can, as you said, Alex, do more of this funding on their own. So, hey, good for them. Like I was impressed. I was really, I I thought it was, it was impressive what they're doing. It's new. It's not unheard of. Marion, you were a really good piece. When you were at Crunchbase? Yeah about evergreen fund structures. So if people want to know more about the semantics and some of the challenges, which includes kind of how it can be unstable to depend on your own money Mm -hmm. to back startups, I would definitely recommend reading that piece. We'll tweet it out from the equity account. But my question slash qualm, which I already told Hunter, so I don't mind saying, is that they haven't said what their minimum check size is. And to me, that is super relevant because if you're going to say that you're changing your strategy and you can invest in anyone, don't you want to also tell people what kind of money you can put in in the first place? So I think it's weird that they didn't share that. Would love for them to. And I am giving him a chance yet again to share it. Okay. Okay. But it's a bit like not listing your height expectations on your dating thingy, right? Because then if you don't have an upper or lower bound in theory, all ranges are fine. So if you don't have a minimum check size, maybe you don't have a minimum check size. But they do have a minimum check size. They just the Say, number. Uh, oh, okay, I misread yeah, that. Oh, so no. coy. Oh, yeah. Hunter, been coy. Hunter, do better. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Jokes aside, he did share. Tweet. He did share what they are targeting for their return, which I think is also newsworthy. It's five x, which is what they usually had in previous funds. So they're not just because they're not going with LPs. I guess they're still keeping their standards pretty high for themselves. We tried an experiment today in which I read the homebrew post and not the Natasha post, which is why I didn't know what she was talking about. I made a complete <laughs> arse of myself on the no, show. You're That's, good. So, so our experiment, not no, good. No, no, I don't think it was that bad. I would say another point though, I wonder is does homebrew like want to be able to have the flexibility to invest in some of the companies that they backed at really early stages at later stages? Is that, do you think that drove this decision at all? One VC I spoke to said that he thinks that they're going to go earlier than later. Mm-hmm. And I think that's because I guess they already have funds open for Bonds. their late stage investments. And we also know, I guess we saw Tiger Global back away from the late stage. So I feel like it's a weird time to double down on late stage right now. Yeah, no one knows what anything's worth, frankly, at the late stage. And it's worrisome. One last note for me on funds and their backers being their VCs. I was talking to, trying to think if I can share this. Yeah, why not? I was talking to GGV. This is because they put together an API startup index that I wrote about the other day. And I I was just riffing with Tiffany, Chelsea, and then Jeff, who I know best. And I forget how this came up, but I ended up poking fun at Jeff on the call. And I was like, well, how much of your net worth is in GGV? And he was like, I'm all of it. 
most of it, some large amount of money. And so I think VCs, as they get deeper into their career, do tend to put more of their own net worth into their funds because they want more money, which is perfectly reasonable. So I guess this is the extreme example. I don't think we'll see everyone do this, but I do like to see someone trying something new other than just becoming as big as possible. Yeah, it was, Amen. It, was, it was refreshing. Yeah. All right. We're being told from the production box, aka the Zoom chat, that we need to shut up and go away. So we're going to do that. I'm Alex, Natasha, Marianne. We're here. We are back Friday with a special episode. We adore you all. And uh, we'll talk to you soon. Goodbye. Thanks. Bye. Bye.